As you probably know, if you have been here for very long, as far as just a few weeks, we're going through the book of Revelation. As you can see, the title of today's message, Sardis, is the one church that's addressed. And the title will be Snap Out of It. Have you ever been in kind of that funk where you're kind of like, you don't even really notice it, and maybe someone close to you just goes, pay attention. You know, your parents maybe are up in your grill a little bit, or your spouse is like, what are you thinking? You know, I thought about uh, an analogy I had happened to catch a particular um, sporting event, and the lady was doing an interview, and one of the players sneaks in on on the camera off to the side and and runs a, a smelling salt, you know, the little tube, the vial they use, just runs it under her nose while she's doing this interview. And she's just like, you know, kind of cross-eyed a little bit, and because you know what those are, right? They like kind of tweak your senses to where you like snap out of it. And I thought, wow, man, if God would use that on us sometimes, that would be really helpful to kind of get us to just kind of, whoa, because if you've ever been there, if you, have you, ever, you know what you do if someone has hypothermia, got really cold? Not, I'm just curious, but kind of research this a little bit for some various reasons. But one thing you do is you got you to gotta kind of snap them out of it, because what do they want to do? Yeah, they, they want to curl up in a fetal position and just like, uh, you know, and you have to wake them up to get the whole circulation going, get some vitality back into them. And we know uh, if we've been a Christian for very long, there's a need sometimes in your life in that regards as well to kind of get things, you know, snapping out of it. So this book, Revelation, the last book in your Bible, is uh, really a book about Jesus. It's uh, got content that addresses the end times, as we call them, and things to come. But it's about his love. We've seen that from chapter 1 and 2. You see it as he introduces these particular exhortations or warnings to the, to the churches, whether it's Ephesus or, you know, the one there in uh, Smyrna or Thyatira. Where we're, we've worked our way up now. We're going to be at Smyrna, um, or I mean Sardis. It, he, uh, he expresses his love, his, his role, his position in the various ways he introduces himself. And in his faithfulness and his commitment to humanity, is the gospel is to whoever would believe that Jesus is God, that he died for your sins, that he conquered death and hell, and there's no other means, no other way that a man can be saved from the judgment that is to come. And, and later on, as we work into this book, after uh, these exhortations of the churches, you're going to see some of the detail of the judgment that's recorded within this book. Now, we've already covered a few things, and I'm just giving a quick review. We're going to pray and jump into chapter 3. But John the Apostle is the agent that God imparts, implants this message. So it's the heart of God expressed through the hand of John the Apostle. He's approximately 90 years old at this time. He's exiled in a place called Patmos, a rocky island in the Aegean Sea, west of... uh, Ephesus, which was the first church we looked at. We learned in chapter 1, because there's some symbolism used, there's some um, metaphor pictures given to you, to me, through this content in this letter. We learned that the stars are the messengers or the, the angels. Even you would have to see, I think, and can see the pastors of these various churches. The golden lampstands, as it's mentioned in these seven different churches and throughout this book, are the churches, the golden lampstands are. And we see also, as we've now worked our way up to Sardis in chapter 3, we see that Jesus holds the church in his right hand. 
And that's significant because it's, it's, it's conveying and it carries the, the, the content, their context, if you would, of he has power and authority and he's the one that can exercise judgment. And so here he's holding the churches, he's addressing the individual leaders, he's addressing a message to all of the churches as well. Even though we're going to read about Sardis, he's, it's, it's to the churches, plural. So it's, it's meant to be received by you know, everyone who is a believer. Let's pray. God, as we approach your word, we do not approach it with a, a confidence that we can somehow, with our own intellect, process and understand it in completeness. These things, God, we know to be true, that the natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit, for these things must be spiritually discerned, revealed by you, God. And so we do thank you for the history. We thank you for what we can understand globally, geographically. But we also know we need you, God, to speak to our hearts individually, to comfort us as we would go through your word, to clarify any areas where we're a little cloudy, and God, that you would convict in such a way that we would respond to your correction in a manner that would be for your glory, God. And so we do thank you, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence here today. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you will lead us and guide us. You'll comfort us. You'll walk us through the word. Oh, thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So, by application, because we're still in the churches and reading about these seven churches, you know, the, the seven churches is not meant to be all the churches that were in existence or in, in gathering at the time that this was written. It speaks of completeness, seven. And we should have this consideration when we read through it. We need to consider the geographical church. There actually was a church here in Sardis. We'll look at some of the detail. I mean, Smyrna, we'll look at it here. It was in Sardis, just east of Smyrna. There, I got it straight. We're going to look at the things that were happening there in Sardis. Uh, same with, as we've done with the other churches. But there's also considering the historical church. As I read it, you read it. We read about Sardis geographically and historically. You know, many scholars have broken down the 2,000 years since this was written and they're able to see really what I believe to be a prophetic declaration in this letter of how the church age will go. So we've seen initially, we looked at Ephesus. You know, Ephesus was the first church listed, and it was listed as the, the church that had left their first love. And early on in the first 100, 200 year, 100 years of the church, it becomes almost systematic, not a, not a structural system like we'd see later. But it become just action and activity and busyness that oriented initially from love become but become just action. And so they were commended that church in Ephesus. Man, you guys, you're really doing this, you're knocking this out, you're laboring, you're being faithful. You remember what he said? But You've left your first love. So there's that historical element. What we're looking at today, uh, many see this as the, the Protestant Reformation point of, of history. Because in the Protestant Reformation, when Martin Luther had, had really brought his declaration and, and how things need to change, he protested the Catholic Church and ushered in or introduced reform. The protest was good. The reform was incomplete. And if you look at history, you'll, you'll see that there was a lot of, yeah, let's go, yeah, that's a good idea, but there wasn't really a transformation taking place in the Protestant Reformation. 
And this church here kind of parallels that. So you had a geographical look, the, city, the actual cities, the historical look during the church age, and the present church, the application being for, for this gathering of people. There's times, I'm sure, in your life, there's times, I'm sure, in our engagement that maybe we've lacked love. Or maybe we've had the emphasis on something else. And so there's an application for each church because it's, it's preserved through history that we would receive what he would tell you and me about it. And then the fourth thing I would consider is you have geographical church, historical church, um, the present church, and the person in church. That would be you, you and me. Because you, I'm sure, have seen there's times you have been maybe unloving or lacking love or maybe more caught up in culture than, than convinced about the, the truth and the absolute you know, word of God and the application in your everyday life. So it's the personal consideration. Got the foundation laid. We've got the references made. Let's jump into Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Verse 3. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, as our practice is, we'll go back now to verse 1, and we'll walk through and work through this. Sardis east of Smyrna, which is in modern-day Turkey. A little background on the city. Um, even before um, the time that John is writing here, the, historically, Sardis was known for decadence. It was on a popular trade route. Uh, the city was known for idolatry and sexual immorality, for the, the pursuit of luxury, pleasure, and easy living. And it had been in that way for, for centuries, really, been known for that. The surrounding cities and the nations looked at Sardis with contempt because of the selfish, immoral way of living that was there. And as I was reading through this this week and processing it, I was like, wow, you know, we don't want to overlook the place of America in this time because things have changed radically, changed things in ways that are they're not healthy. And quite honestly, much of the world sees us as a type of Sardis. You know, people talk about, they study these, these churches, and they, I've even heard people say, man, America, we're like living in Laodicea. I don't think you should skip past Sardis too fast. There's things in our culture that are so similar as what we'll see in, in speaking even to the church. You know, the, the church, and we have to, we have to put it in, Totality. In other words, we have to include non-denomination, denomination, all these different public expressions of what's described as the church of God. Do you know there's many who don't even believe that Jesus is God and they proclaim it? There's many that teach many cultural preferences that are directly contrary to the very word of God. 
and they speak it emphatically. There's, there's universities with Christian names that don't even believe the, the absolute word of God. There's professors proclaiming all these things, and there's, it's just really weird. So, you know, for many of us, we're not exposed to that element. We don't, but we're not a part of that in an in a absorption or in a, uh, receiving that kind of stuff. But there's so many that are just, I, I listen to some of the things that different groups believe. Just erase church from your name. Call it an association. Call it a, you know, a fraternity. Call it something else. It, it is not, and I think, wow, that's not just in America. That's just going on. And there's just this really odd, you know, expression in the world today. When it says seven, as you see here, it speaks of completeness, fullness, even perfection. And so as we already looked at this church in Sardis to the, to the angel, said, Jesus explains who he is. He, he makes known you know, that uh, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, the pastors. You know, it's really important that you catch that. He has the angels, the messengers, the pastors, the spokesmen. It, it speaks of lordship. And so when a teacher, a pastor, a messenger of God is proclaiming the word of God, he must be surrendered to the lordship of God. If you're not surrendered to lordship, if, if, if he isn't the one who is leading you as an under-shepherd or a, a, a person to speak in the truth, then you're probably going to just come up with whatever works, whatever's convenient, which is what we see happening time and time again. So I want to encourage you. He mentioned that because the leadership should be under the lordship of Christ. We see also in this verse, he speaks of the seven spirits. And this is, once again, seven speaks of completeness and of perfection. Scholars have uh, discussed this, maybe argued, I don't know, debated, wondered, pondered, what is the seven spirits of God? And there's a few explanations for it, and I think it's healthy to have a discussion and an interaction without having to be right or definitive or my way only type of mentality. I always like to look to the Bible to see if I can get a glimpse or a foundation. And if you turn with me, actually we'll bring it up on projection, chapter 11 of Isaiah, beginning in verse 1, we have an interesting glimpse of Jesus. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. We know who that is, Jesus. The spirit of the Lord, one, shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, two, and understanding, that's three. Spirit of counsel, four, and might, five. Spirit of knowledge, six, and the fear of the Lord, seven. So we have this interesting description and a glimpse of, of, of Jesus, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, personages, but one God. And so it's really cool because, you know, Jesus was, is God, but he was also filled with the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, he, the, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit that lives within you. So that's speaking of a personage. So moving back now to Revelation 3, as we consider that this, this, when he speaks of the seven spirits of God, it's not individual things, it's actually my, my type of characteristic expression. In Revelation 3, verse 1, he goes on to say, I know your works. So the one who knows all things the one who has wisdom, knowledge, understanding, the spirit of the Lord, he gets to say, I know, that you, I know your works. 
that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Continuing in verse 2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Wow. I mean, you think about that. He's addressing this to churches, to people, to Christians. Listen, I know what's going on. And it's got to cause us to go, wow. Now, initially, I know what it does for most of us. Oh, I know who you're talking about. I met that guy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, I've been, I met people like that. But when you get done with that little diversion, when you come back to reality, like, well, Lord, what are you, what are you speaking to? Now, we may think, okay, what, in a gathering, in, in a cultural c- coming together, what did the Sardis church look like? You know, was it, was it really just kind of, and you may have kind of a negative tilt, whatever your negative tilt would be in that regards. But, but look what it says. You have a name that you are alive. So what I think you have, you have an active, a vibrant, a humanitarian church, a politically correct church, a cultural church, a connected church with a great reputation in the community. See, it's an interesting thing as we as Christians engage in our world and with our family and neighbors and friends and coworkers, you know, we will do humanitarian things. There's certain things we will, will extend God's love to people. We also have a responsibility to make sure they know why we do what we do. Because the culture there in Sardis was, a, oh, that just, that's a great gathering of people. They're just wonderful. Great reputation in the community. But Jesus said, but, but they're dead. It's perplexing, actually. You can be alive to men and dying spiritually. That's what we see here. And as I was chatting with some friends earlier, and you know, looking at sometimes in reality the difficulty of teaching through the Bible, because an option is to teach topically, then I can avoid Sardis, and I can just talk about patience and love and kindness and happy days and butterflies and unicorns. Everybody goes home with a smile and a new muffin. But that's, that's, we, gotta, we teach through the word. We, we, we're obligated. I have a responsibility to present to you the whole counsel of God is what the Ephesians were told. And so as I bring this and you read this, it's like, let's not also it'll, it'll remove ourselves. Because here's something to realize. Religion is easy to duplicate. Relationship cannot be duplicated. Religion's easy to duplicate. It's, a, it's an element of having at least the faculties to hear or see or both and pick up on practices and policies and certain things and then just replicate, duplicate those things. And we do it, like I think when I was a young Christian, I did it. I mean, I just looked around. I first started to go to church before I was even a Christian. And I started picking up on the jargon of Christianese language and certain actions, and you know, like, and it wasn't bad. I thought, well, see, I've never thought, I've never lived that way. But people would say, it's not about religion; it's about relationship. See, the problem is relationship can't be duplicated. Agreed. You know, if you have more than one sibling, you probably recognize that growing up. Like my, my younger brother, my older brother, my sister, myself, we're in the same environment, but we're not treated exactly the same. We don't have special rules, but my parents learned, like I later learned as a parent, the individual child requires individual 
attention. They're, they're not duplicated. When, when Danielle was growing, we figured this out, and, you know, and then our son comes along, Jordan, now he's there. We don't just do exactly the same we did with her because it's different. You're not just duplicating. You're realizing, man, there's, there's more to this. Religion relies on expression. Relationship requires interaction. And that's why we, we say these things that are really that simple. You know, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. But if there's no transformation, your words are not true. If there is, is that, not, is that right? I mean, if you're not transformed, if there's, you know, if we're not conformed to this world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, according to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, there needs to be something taking place. Otherwise, we can find ourselves duplicating what can't be duplicated, copying what really cannot be copied. And so think about what Jesus said. Jesus had some really strong words. I think, as one artist said in this song, the most terrifying words to man. Turn with me to Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, as Jesus is teaching this this life in Christ, this new life to come, this, this interaction culturally, this reality, this understanding of heaven and everything related to it. And people he knew would, would say, oh, I do it this way and I'm doing that and I'm, I'm not so bad. And look at what he says in verse 21 of, Revel- or of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, and he goes on to give us an analogy. But interestingly enough, you hopefully caught that last portion, who hears this and does this, who receives the instruction and responds with action. Verse 21, you've seen, hopefully. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It would trigger within you and me, hopefully, as we read this. But means not everyone's going to heaven, but... These will, these he, he draws attention to. Who are they? Those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Well, what's the will of the Father? See, the will of the Father is that you believe the one he sent, that you believe in his Son. Now, we may think, well, the will of the Father is to follow the Ten Commandments. No. According to Galatians, the Ten Commandments were given that we would realize we can't do it on our own. They were a schoolmaster, a tutor to teach us our need for a Redeemer, for a Messiah. So it's not to do, it's this reality of to believe. When you believe the one Jesus said very clearly, you know, whoever believes in me shall not perish but have everlasting life. It was very specific. He didn't say have everlasting life and then do good. Because we're talking about relationship, not religion. So let's, let's kind of walk through this maybe with some clarity. When you believe something, there will be an action that confirms that belief. Agreed? When you believe something, there'll be an action that that would confirm it. We live in a time, and literally it's true in the last 2,000 years, but I'll use some 
common vernacular terms. Many today like the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the like is the Facebook type of like. You know, we have these different uh, formats or avenues or things. There's like Snapchat and uh, Instagram and uh, Facebook, these soiled media they call it or whatever it is, social media, my bad. So we have these stained ways of engaging. And, And many, you know, I mean, think about what that is, that type of like. You make minimal effort to express your agreement and then go on about your life. Checking back in on occasion to see the like status and the followers. And you might even like someone who likes what you like. But that's different. There's no other involvement. Maybe a thought or curiosity or such. Do you like the gospel of Jesus Christ in this way? Because see, believing is different than that. And that's why many people struggle, seriously. Because some would say, you're telling me this murderer, this rapist, this horrible person, if he just says, I believe in Jesus, then he gets to go to heaven? Because I think that's a, maybe not the mockery in the quotes, but you know what I mean? It's, I, I get it. Because, wait a minute, there's got to be more to belief. And there is. See, belief is, you know, when we believe something, there's a corresponding action. When you believe that somebody, something is true, then there's going to this reaction. I, I like this analogy. I heard it years ago from a friend, and he talked about, you know, if you're in a gathering, and I'll, I'll put it to this place, say you're out in the lobby after service, and you're inside, not outside, because of obvious weather, and so you're just kind of hanging there with a few friends, and there's quite a few people there, and you look, and here's this plane banking off to the south, and you see it turn, and you're like, your calculator is going, ding, 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 ding. It's like you're, you're estimating. All of a sudden, you're like, man, that plane looks like it's coming right for the building. And as you watch a little bit, and you're trying to stay in the conversation, but you're distracted because, and you believe that that airplane is going to hit the parking lot, the patio, and come through this building. Do you go, I think we should have a prayer meeting right now? I mean, you should pray, but you should do something else. There should be an action that corresponding to that belief. And hopefully you won't just walk out and sneak over to the youth ranch with your camera for something to go viral. Instead, you're like, hey, look, we got to move. You're going to convey it to people. You're going to relate it to people. You're going to, you see, there's an action. And it's the same thing when we put our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ. There is an action. It's internal first. It's a realization. It's it's, It's a... it's a, it's a relational thing. And then once you, you have that, you live what you say. You live what you say you believe. Expression because of the belief, not to cause the belief. Religion is an expression to cause the belief. Does that make sense? Relationship is you have the belief, you have the relationship, and the relationship results in an action that corresponds with it. So that's why when someone says they believe unto salvation... There will be a change in their life. There will be. You can't just keep doing the same reprobate things and pull out your little Jesus card when you get to the pearly gates and flash that on Peter like you're going to get in for free. It doesn't work that way. Our lives now are transformed. They're changed because we live out the love we've been given. You have been given a love that you have yet to tap into fully. I know that because it's so big. I know it myself. You love, I love, we love as Christians because he first loved us. 
and the love that moved him to the cross and took him through that misery and pain and suffering and raised him from the dead, the same love that, that resides within him is implanted with us when, within us when we're born again. And our role now is learning how to love the way he loved, learning how to let what's implanted empowering us to be the expression because of the relationship, because we have a relationship with him, then we want his love. And hopefully, if you've been a Christian for even a short period, you've seen this play out. If you've been a Christian for a long time and you don't love any different, I want you to question your salvation. I know you didn't come here for that, but seriously. Because if you're not loving any different, then what do you believe? Can you love someone who's unlovable? No. Not in your own strength. But you can love someone who's unlovable when you learn the love of Christ within you and allow it to be expressed because of the relationship you have. And then those who are offensive to you or done terrible things to you, there's an expression, an element of love that's changing you on the inside. It may be a while before the outward expression catches up. I'm a realist, I know that. But really, think about it. We live out the love we've been given. Our beliefs have an effect on our actions. Moving back to Revelation chapter three. We can do this. <laughs> Verse three. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. If you don't watch you're going to regret it, what the next portion says. Uh, Revelation 3, verse 3, I would, this first portion, I would maybe summarize it by, for application. Remember, repent, and be watchful. Remember how you got saved in the first place. It, I didn't get saved because I was a pastor. I didn't get saved because I would do certain things for the kingdom. I got saved because I was overwhelmed by the grace and the reality of my own sin. And by his amazing love, I surrendered to that truth and asked for his forgiveness. I, I, I was born again, and I brought nothing to the table. And we want to remember that. He says, remember, you know, if we go along in our Christian journey so far that we deviate and wander from Jesus, we need to check the route. We need to say, wait a minute, I want to, I want to, I want to remember, I want to repent. I don't want to say it's okay to do this or to think that way when I know it's directly contrary to the words of Jesus Christ. If I know it's contrary and I still don't like it, I just ask him, could you help me deal with this? I'm not going to fake it. I'm not going to be fraudulent and say, all right, because you told me to, I'll like it. Oh, serious. That's like telling a Ford lover to like a Chevy because the neighbor's got one and it looks good. You know, it's like otherwise, you know, it's like, <laughs> no. But get it. When I know that's his desire and his desire can be accomplished through me for his glory by transforming me with his love, then I want to repent. I don't want to keep doing it my way. I want to go to his way. And I want to be watchful. I want to be looking around. I want to be aware of what's going on. Let's return back to a little history on Sardis. The Sardis lifestyle produced the soft and overconfident people, which I think you can just think through how it applies to America right now. One Greek historian wrote of uh, King Cyrus who conquered Sardis in 549 B.C. So here's a background on Sardis topography. The city where um, everything happened was actually on a hill 
and the natural terrain was just super steep and rocky, and it was just impossible to get up. So it was easy to defend, super easy to defend. And so when King Cyrus got there, he's like, man, how are we going to do this? And he issued this deal, this offer to his soldiers, the story goes. Whoever can figure out a way to get up there and to conquer them, I will give great wealth. One of the soldiers was watching, studying, liking the idea of a particular bonus. He's like, hmm. And one of the uh, men of war, the soldiers in Sy- of, Sy- of Sardis, was up on the wall and dropped his helmet. His helmet fell over the wall. Ding, 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 down to the bottom. And this other soldier of Cyrus watches this. Like, huh. Well, this guy sneaks his way down. There was actually kind of a hidden trail down the wall of the, the defense. He sneaks down, gets his helmet, goes back up. This soldier watches it. Took a platoon, small group actually, in at night, got up on the wall, climbed up to the top, and what was interesting is they conquered the wall because there was no watchman. Let me read to you what the one historian says. The soldiers of Sardis were so confident in the natural defenses of their city, they felt no need to keep a diligent watch. So the city was easily conquered. History goes on to tell us that the same thing happened in 214 BC when Antiochus attacked and conquered the overconfident city that didn't set a watch, he did it the same way. See what happens when you become overconfident, when you're complacent, content, and we're not setting a watch? Jesus is saying to you and me, be watchful, be aware. And we're told in, in the New Testament, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 10, to be careful where you stand because these things are written for our learning, and our admonition is what the word says. So be careful where you stand lest you fall. We think, oh, it's just not going to happen to us. You know, to this nation, to this time, to this church, Calvary Chapel Mountain Home, to those who gather here, yeah, we're okay, we're content. This isn't about us. You know, because think about it, we, it's not us. We read the Bible. We read through the Bible. We teach the Bible. We go verse by verse. We have the Bible as our little idol. Did he say that? Yeah, there's sometimes it's, it's used almost as a form of idolatry. And you think, man, how can he say that? He's teaching the word. How could it be? Because sometimes we look at it and elevate it to the point we don't do what it says. And if we don't do what it says, then how can we say we believe what's in it? Does that not make sense? It's like there's a point where it's got to be, it's got to be practically applied. It's got to be lived out. We got to be careful. We can be, any one of us here, even this church historically, we can deviate into this. What Jesus would say, you guys got a great rep. Boy, you're pounding it out. The people are impressed. But you're dying. You're dying spiritually. You don't realize you're not listening to me. You're not receiving from me. You're not returning to me. You're not repenting. And, and, you know, and that's a practical thing. That's a personal thing. It should happen corporately, but you see, you know, it's, it's that you repent, I repent because of the relationship, not because of a religion. Because God convicts you or convicts me on a comment, a thought, an attitude, whatever it may be that's indifferent to the word of God. And so we got to recognize that. Do we mock God with our marriages? Do we deify the dollar so much that it, that's all we're really concerned about and we find certain ways to, to ease our conscience? Do we really walk according to truth? And I, I say I love studying this. I love teaching it truthfully because 
I've noticed this about correction. When God brings correction, it takes you the right direction. You see, when, when, you, when I'm off track and, you know, I'm a guy, so I have went long distances without asking for directions because I can blame my gender. And I just keep going, no, I think it's on up here a ways. And then I, it takes me a long time to get back because I was off course long enough. I had to then turn around. And, it would have been better to receive the direction and make a correction and go the direction I should be going. And you see the analogy, the parallel spiritually. I would rather be corrected quickly than wander aimlessly and let God do that comfort. He'll always, when he corrects you, when he corrects me, he'll do it to build us up, not to tear us down. He will always do it to bring us back into a closer relationship with him. Now in verse 4, we're told there in Revelation 3, you have a few names even in Sardis. There is a remnant even in Sardis. And it really, if you study the wording of these different churches, these seven churches, you'll see that he basically is, is saying in that church in Sardis, there are actually just a few. Others, it seems to imply there's a good majority, a good portion that were in sync and on step and in walking with the Lord. But there he said, well, you just have a, there's just a remnant. There's always a remnant. Even in this town, in, even in Sardis, it speaks of. And notice it goes on to say that uh, the, some who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk worthy with me in white, for they are worthy. The garments, think of like weddings. Think of like, because I think that's probably the one consistent thing culturally, depending on how your the, the custom is or how the particular ceremony is. But generally speaking, you kind of dress it up for the wedding, right? Especially if you're in the wedding party. What do you do if you're in the wedding party? You generally like go with what the whole thing's going on. Well, think about this. Some, is what he's saying here, some have been playing in the muck and the mire, and now they still want to stand up in the wedding party. He says, a few have not defiantly dirtied themselves. And this is what he says, I know. I know who's who. I know which is which. I know what's going on. And so, you know, it's really cool because, you know, hopefully that's comforting to you. Is it comforting to you to know that Jesus knows everything? I hope it is. I hope you have a relationship with him that you'll receive that correction. And you'll be able to know, hey, you know, I know. And verse 5 just reminds you and me, even when you're struggling, even when you just get back on your feet, or maybe you're just getting back on your feet, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. An overcomer needs one primary quality. Don't quit. Don't quit. You know, we all feel like quitting, but then we realize we got no place to go. And then we get maybe discouraged a little bit, or we're kind of getting beaten up a little bit by the life's realities. Don't quit. An overcomer just focuses on what needs to be done. If you've ever been in a situation, and or maybe even a competition, where you really need to just focus, it's towards the end of a race, or whatever it may be, and you realize you can't be distracted and looking to the left and the right, you just need to focus just to be able to finish. It's that way in marriages, it's that way in other relationships, it's that way in our walk with the Lord. Just keep your eyes on him. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, of fixing our eyes upon him, the author and finisher of our faith. We're learning to just stay focused, because he says, you know, don't quit. It's an interesting title of this book, the, the book of life. Have you ever read of that? Ever heard of that? The Bible speaks of it. There's this, this book, it's a big one. And I don't even know, some have thought it was more spiritual or maybe metaphorical, I don't know, but it does say later, speaking of, I saw the book. 
So how do you get your names in the book of life? See, many consider that when you're born again, your names are written into the book of life, and I have no argument with that. But it speaks of having them blotted out. So if you're blotted out because you don't perform, you don't do good enough, you don't stay on track right, you don't overcome, and your names are removed, that's complicated in theology, in doctrine. Because that means you're getting removed because you didn't do your part, which is a workspace way to stay in the kingdom, which is contrary to the gospel. I would ask that you consider, what if uh, God knows all things, knows every single human being, He knows every person that's been killed in the womb. He knows every person that's been born. He knows everything about everyone. Young child, old person. What if he knows everyone? And he actually wrote every single name in a book. Every single name. And in his wisdom and his love and his kindness and compassion and mercy, those who he knew rejected him who would not receive him. If they lived to be 60 or they lived to be six months, he knows them perfectly. And those who, were just, who would, do not want him, who do not want to spend eternity with him, he would blot out their name. At least consider, I'm not being definitive, but it helps you when you start reconciling some of these other realities when you're, you're sorting through doctrine. There's an interesting tidbit for this as well. In that day, in that era, many cities had a citizen registry. You were part of the citizenry of that city. They literally was a book, probably for tax purposes and most likely. But nonetheless, and, but yet when you did something that was contrary, you were found guilty of a crime or, you know what I mean, you, you, you were excommunicated, so to speak, your name was blotted out of the citizenry of the city. And I believe that's a lot of what, we're build, what he's building off of and revealing here. Not, not to say that takes away from that other truth I already spoke about. But it helps us see and helps us work through. God does know everything and know everyone. And we struggle. We wrestle about this young child that died or this person or that. And we wonder about their salvation in many situations. But when you wonder about someone's salvation, use this as your center point. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave himself. He, he came as a man. He died for us. And he, he did everything possible for whomever would believe it. It even tells us in John that he, he pursues us. He loves us to the uttermost. And I like to think of it as the guttermost sometimes. So his love is phenomenal. And he's not going to shortcheat anybody. He doesn't show partiality. So I know whoever's in the book of life, he knows them perfectly well. Verse 6, close it out. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sometimes when we're going through studies together and have this time like this morning, sometimes the message is just really crystal clear and sometimes something is just really kind of builds you up and it's just like, oh, wow, awesome. You know, sometimes you, you, you go home and you process it and you chew on it and you wonder, man, what was that point? Why, why, I don't get that. But what you heard, what the Lord emphasized in your heart and mind and your spirit, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit's saying to you. Because his desire is you would be closer to him, that you would know him, that you would be walking in truth with him, that he would strengthen you and protect you and equip you. And so I want to encourage you, whatever the Lord's speaking to you, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to his people. 
We're going to have uh, Greg come back up this time, and we're going to take communion together. And I'm glad to take communion today because of the nature of this study, because communion is not a religious ritual, as some have taught, where the organization qualifies you to take communion, where you follow certain guidelines and you take certain tests and you now are approved to participate in, in this practice. It's not about religion. It's about your relationship with Jesus Christ. And I can prove that because Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. It's because of your relationship with him, not to to, to come to some requirement. And so with that, I want to encourage you to, to realize the relationship you have. And so if you'd stand with me, I want to read a verse, a couple verses, and then we're going to pray. And after we pray, we'll join together in a song of worship. And during that song, you can come forward and pick up the elements. Now, the elements are a little confusing if you haven't been here before. There's two cups, but you only see one, sort of. The, the, the bread is underneath the cup with the juice. We just, we just combined them that way for, so it wasn't have to be handled too awful much. So anyway, pick up a cup, return to your seat, As we finish and conclude the song of worship together, I'll come up and we'll take that communion together. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the conviction that cuts to our heart. Thank you for the questions you've you've caused us to consider and ponder and think about. And thank you for the clarity that you'll bring as you show us that you know all things. You love us. You offer hope. You offer strength. You offer victory to us, God. Thank you so much. Thank you for what you're doing, Jesus. As we consider what we read here, the song that was being sung and it will be in the future, the words, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Oh, Lord, thank you that you are worthy. That you, in your love, came to earth, lived a sinless life. You, God, paid the price for our forgiveness. You paid the price for our sins with your body. And so, Lord, prepare our hearts. Clarify to our minds what an amazing thing you've done that we could have new life. You give your life that we could live and you rose from the dead. Oh, we sing to you with joy and gladness, Jesus. Amen. Amen.